is Tanya back again with another episode of Recovering Church Girls, and I have with me today Delaine Cooper. Before I tell you a little bit about her, I want to say hi. Hi, Delaine. <laughs> Hello there, Tanya. I am so excited for this conversation, and of course, being the fact that it's winter and we're both in cold territories, we've had a few attempts to actually get this conversation on the book, so now it's even with more anticipation and excitement. <laughs> really be able to dive in. So thank you for your patience and working through winter storms and all sorts of fun stuff that we got to do. (laughs) At least we both understand each other. (laughs) So true. So true. It's not like we're sending each other, you know, screenshots of, of what we're looking out at this beachfront, you know, type of, oh, it's beautiful here. I don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. Sadly, that was not either of our reality in the midst of this winter fiasco. Definitely not. Definitely not. (laughs) So for any of you who might not know Delane yet, um, first of all, you are in for a treat. She's an amazing artist. Uh, Her primary work is in jewelry design and also as a goldsmith. And she's also an author. She's written a book called Letters to Eli that we're going to hear quite a bit more. And before we dive into any of this, I do want to give you guys a bit of a trigger warning because Delane was a victim of childhood sexual abuse. And this is something that we're going to talk about because it comes into play quite a lot when it came to her role in the church and trying to find help and solace in that. So just want to give you guys a quick heads up to know where we're headed. Um, you know, like many of our conversations, it's not always easy, but this is the stuff of life. This is the stuff that we're going after. And these are the conversations that we want to be able to have openly and honestly and with love and support. So with that being said, that's kind of where we're headed. So with all of that, Delaine, I'm so grateful for you your willingness to be able to kind of rip the bandaid off and to go deep and to, to go vulnerable. So thank you for that. And the first thing I'd like to ask you is when you think about the idea of recovering church girls, what does that bring up for you? What did that, you know, how, how did you respond when we first started talking about this concept? It actually triggered me recovering church girls. I was thinking, wow, I, was born and raised as a Catholic. I went to Catholic school and uh, I had to sit with it for a while. And really what, actually I did a little bit of research on you and was trying to figure out, could I have the courage to reach out to you and learn more? Hmm. And I know that for a couple of days prior, um, it was uncomfortable actually. And taking me back to some memories of church and wondering, do I even really want to go down this route because of the trauma that I had already experienced? And as with some, with a trauma like experiencing childhood sexual abuse, there are these other tangents that come into play. And so uh, it was triggering, one, and two, I think it's important that we talk about it, and hence why I decided to reach out to you and share my experience of what recovery as someone from the church had experienced. I so appreciate that, and I, it's so interesting to me because I think, um, you know, I have this expression that apparently I say all the time. I have a few listeners that have been like, you said it again. Like, yeah, I'm going to keep saying it because I still feel that it's so true. There are so many layers to everything that we talk about because it really is all interconnected. And, you know, who we are, how we show up as an adult now, how we show up as an artist, how we show up as a service provider, how we show up as a parent, any of the roles that we now carry and that we live out 
out, they've all been shaped and formed in some way, shape, or form from our experiences in our childhood and everything that's made us kind of who we are today. So I love the, the idea of being able to really integrate who we were then and who we are now so that we can be more intentional about who we're becoming rather than just leave it on autopilot and, you know, especially if we're still in the programming of the, the church's perspective of this is what we're supposed to be. So having all of that in the mix, I think, is a really important part to our individual growth. And then, of course, how that affects us as a collective. Oh, so completely. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Here we are talking about the church. And this morning I was kind of chuckling because I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a, uh, I guess she was doing a, a workshop of some sort and she was chuckling and saying, now who wants to do the Brene Brown church? Who's going to follow me? <laughs> and I was thinking BBC. Uh, I I would definitely join the BBC. <laughs> I love it. That's so fun. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, um, and I think there seems to be a conversation that's happening on a larger scale. The church is being redefined. Oh, and, exactly. Know, out of the organized religious type of perspective, but also saying, you know, what is church? Is it the community? Is it the people mm-hmm. that we're doing life with? Is it the core tenets that we've all agreed to? Do we actually know what we've agreed to? Or what are we being influenced by the things that are implied versus explicitly stated? I mean, again, a lot of layers, but I love that right. we're starting to see verbiage that we can identify with and be able to find some solace in that doesn't necessarily come with all of the baggage. Exactly. And what I find interesting is the questions you ask, if I were to answer them, I don't know for you, but for someone like myself, there's different versions of that. And where Mm -hmm. I was going with Brene Brown, she talks about there's these different versions of ourselves. There's the version of when we went to church as a schoolgirl. There's the version of, okay, as an adult, what does the church mean to me now? Mm -hmm. There's the version of you and I interfacing and how we want to interface together. And to your point, it's bringing all these versions of ourselves together, holding hands with the versions of our past that may have been in pain and hurt and being vulnerable enough to actually hold that, whether it's a child, um, young adult, adult version of ourselves, all coming together and saying, we can do this. I've got this. And let's all stand together and uh, without judgment, be present. And yes, let's move forward. And I have to admit, sometimes when I meet someone new and there's a challenge that arises, there's a version of myself that I completely forgot about. <laughs> All of a sudden and making itself known, right? <laughs> exactly. And I, I think it's interesting how we use the term skeletons in our closet. I, I think something that's more positive is that's a version of myself I'd actually like to bring forward mm. and come out of the closet, so to speak, and let her come into the light. Hmm. because the only way we're going to heal wounds is allowing that light in. Uh, So um, anyway, we went off into a wonderful tangent. (laughs) 
people do that a few times. Yes. I love that. And I love the, the imagery that that represents. And it certainly, you know, as I mentioned before, we started recording that I'm, I'm deep in the process of working on the book that encapsulates so much of this experience and this journey. And really this idea of returning to ourselves and collecting all the pieces of ourselves back together again, that that's really what the, the recovery process is all about. So with that being said, uh, could you tell us about your childhood? Tell us what, what happened for you and what you experienced and how that relates to the church. Okay. So what happened was, is it started in grade four. Um, we had, I went to a Catholic school and there was, sex ed was going to be taught. Our, a form had to be signed by our parents to acknowledge that the students were going to be taught this. And at the time, my biological mother was in hospital, and so my father had to sign the form. Well, I showed him the form. He asked, where is the book? I showed him the book. He flipped through the book, looked at some of the photos, asked if I knew what any of the photos meant. I said no. And I recall that when he asked that, my body just felt uncomfortable. It was the first time I was ever conscious of feeling uncomfortable around my father. Mm -hmm. And then he signed the form. And then later on that night was our first incident and my experience of dissociation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So from there in grade four, it happened all the way to, so I was nine years old up until I was 15. But as I was going through each class, I remember uh, in grade five, the uh, instructor had a parent-teacher meeting with my parents and had mentioned to my parents, I see that your daughter seems to be maturing in some ways more than the other students, but does not seem to be doing well in her, um, in her classes. Do you know where this is coming from? Hmm. And I recall my dad sharing that with me and kind of saying it as if he was partially proud, but it, I, because I was in grade five, I was confused by it. Hmm. And looking back on it, now I had some sort of understanding of what that was, what she was trying to ask, I guess, and what, what he was able to hide, right? Yeah. And, um, and I guess part of it, and there was a lot of guilt around it and shame because I remember that it was supposed to be a secret. And mm. in grade two, I'll never forget receiving my religion book and opening it up. And the first thing our teacher said was, now don't ever forget, God comes first, my, your neighbor comes second, and you are third. Repeat after me. Mm. And we repeated it. And from grade two, that is how I went to sleep. I, every night before I went to sleep, I always said that. And it's interesting how that one phrase really carried my decision-making and in many ways hurt me as an adult because I gave away not just of myself and my body, but my energy, my being, because it was rooted 
at such an early age that I came, I came third. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely want to talk about that, that piece more because I feel like there's, there are so many different things that spin out of that concept. And then when you can separate it and actually look at the scripture itself, it's funny to me because it could also very easily be interpreted. And I would venture to say the intention was to prioritize our self relationship, our self love, our love acceptance, our, I should say our self-acceptance, our self-compassion, and in as much as we can love ourselves, that's with which we should overflow to our neighbors. And somewhere along the way, the church really fucked that one up, to be quite frank. Um, And I think that there's there's so many of us. I am so with you on that one. (laughs) Well, there's so many of us that were caught in the crossfire of that. So I do want to come back to that. But I want to bring back, you mentioned the idea that that was the first night of disassociation. Can you unpack that Mm -hmm. a little bit more? Because I feel like, I feel like it's something that so many of us can identify with. But many don't have the verbiage. They don't have the language to identify this is the moment that I was no longer fully in my body. This is the moment that I wasn't in alignment with who I was or what I was doing or what was happening to me. So what was that like for you? How did that show up? What kind of thought process were you going through? How does all of that work in grade four? Great loaded question (laughs) because I've been able to take (laughs) the dissociation, it's important to say this. Um, I had taken a tool such as dissociation and later on in life been able to use it as a tool for creativity. Mm. So with that being said, let me go back. So I used to live in a place where there was uh, a, a, a train yard nearby. There was a cannery and this train would come and pick up, um, the the food that was being packed and it was in the middle of the night after midnight sometime and that was when my father came into the room and when i heard the train come for me what happened was i went into a very deep sleep mm-hmm. and i was away from my body and somehow on a magical train And this train was actually on the water and a conductor said, pick any seat you want. And I sat near a window and the train, which made no sense, was going along the ocean water. I could see land uh, afar. But in the meantime, there were these amazing flying fish flying parallel to the train, dolphins, jumping over the train and I was in a place of happiness and joy. I don't recall feeling anything to my body. I just remember hearing my, and so I was experiencing that. And when it was over, I remember the bedroom door closing. Hmm. So that was how dissociation showed up for me. My, uh, however it started, I don't know if it was psychological. I'm sure some 
therapist out there who's listening could probably break it down technically on how the brain works. But uh, sometimes I just think it's also divine intervention that maybe some angel came down and said, let's just put her in a dream state. Yeah. And I choose to look at it that way because what I've been able to do through the years when the abuse was happening, I would dissociate. Mm -hmm. And later on in life, uh, after I had left uh, that situation and became an adult, dissociation became a way for me to actually harness creativity. And um, I remember Brene Brown saying, if you numb the pain, you numb the joy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, numbing the pain was numbing my creativity as well. Absolutely. So how could I actually look at not dissociating out of my body as an adult, but still tap into those tools to help me present day. Mm -hmm. And so I actually have over years of practice um, taken, utilized meditation mm -hmm. and taking notes through meditation and utilizing the opportunity of sleep for creativity and have jewelry designs come to me that way. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that even in the midst of such a, a horrifying and heartbreaking situation that never should happen to any child, there's such a, a, a beautiful thing to try to keep you safe in the midst of that. And I would imagine that's, that's got to be somewhat complex and complicated to be grateful for the experience of being on the train and having this this moment and this connection with, you know, this divine inspiration and, and even as an adult, the creativity and having that, that interconnection. And then at the same time, recognizing it never should have happened that way. So like, that's just, there's so many layers and, and complexities to the entire situation in that. Oh, believe me. I'm torn in there are day <laughs> on good days. I can look at what happened as, and this is going to sound so messed up, Tanya, but on a good day, I can look at what happened as an opportunity for me to actually tap into my creativity. So if I'm going to really venture out and be positive, I can say, well, maybe that was, I had to experience that to have my own version of experiencing creativity. Mm -hmm. um, on a really bad day, um, I can also admit and say, fuck, why did this happen? Yeah. And I don't care how safe dissociation was for me. Um, and yes, the gift was creativity. Why did it have to happen? And why do we have to experience such pain so we can experience such joy? That just sounds so ironic or wrong. Right. I, and maybe it, it is the child in me that really does want to pretend that 
couldn't we just have been cuddled and loved as children and under and know that Mm -hmm. um because the work that i'm doing in regards to not only sharing my story there's the responsibility of actually hearing other people's story as well absolutely absolutely and having that open heart and being present with them and not dissociating Mm -hmm. as i'm listening to them right yeah, absolutely. Such a complex experience and and gift and tragedy and all of it all at the same time. And thank you again for sharing that because I think that so often when there are childhood traumas, and I'll be very quick to say, neither one of us are licensed therapists or psychologists or psychotherapists or anything along those lines. We've also both been through a few things and we've, we've done a lot of work internally to get to where we are now. So again, all of my disclaimers, but I think when you look at, there's so many of us, so many different stories about what we experienced and how we got through, but then also how we made sense of it after the fact. And I think there's something in that piece of this happened and I'm not just this moment. And there's something in that connection of being willing to grow and be willing to use that to become more connected with yourself, become more connected to however you interpret the divine being, um, if that's something that you choose to pursue, how you pursue relationships with other people. You know, and it's such a tricky balance because I found that there is a very thin line between staying in what's been inflicted upon us versus choosing to move past it. And it's not to say that we don't honor the experience and we don't validate what happened and we don't go deep and feel the feels and work through all those layers. But if we only stay in that space, we're incredibly limited to what we can do not only for ourselves, but also for other people. I love that you mentioned this responsibility that it's not just our own individual stories. We become, you know, kind of the story bearers for other people as well and hold space for them and their healing. And to that end, I would love to hear more about the art project that you have with that. Um, so I'm going to circle back to that and like dropping all these little teasers for everybody, not intentionally. It's just the way my, (laughs) Um, but there's something, just this idea that you were abused sexually by your father from the age of grade four, from the age of nine, you were in a Catholic school. Did you ever tell anyone what was happening to you? Were you ever heard? Was there justice ever served? What happened to the young Delane Cooper who endured all of this? Wonderful question. And it's a difficult one. Sometimes there's good days to answer it and bad days to answer it. So what happened was, is once again, having experienced this from grade four and having been told by my teachers you're a bright child. I don't understand why you can't finish the homework. I don't understand why you can't turn in the homework. You seem very bright. I seem bright. That was hurtful. Oh, I bet. So in grade seven, I went to my church and it was um, uh, where I was going to do penance. And um, went to see uh, 
this one priest and it was face-to-face confession. And I sat down and I could feel myself making the decision as I was sitting in the pew before I opened up the door that today is the day I am going to say something. Today is the day I'm going to say something. So um, I get up and I go to the um, door, open it up, sit down in front of um, the priest and, you know, bless me, Father, for I have not sinned. Mm. my father has and the priest looked at me and said well what are you saying child and so I shared what happened and I can tell you after I said what I said this cloak of shame came down and felt like just cannonballs were on this cloak Mm. And descending down in the confessional <laughs> and being laid upon me, and I could just feel my body saying, You fucked up. You just made, said something publicly to a priest, and now what? And in my head was, But I can't do this anymore. Mm. You need to say something. So there was this. Uh, awful interior or internal battle going on within me. But in that very short period of time, the priest said, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, The next time your father does that, tell him it's wrong and have him come see me. Um, I am really having a hard time with this. (laughs) Just how... So he... Wow. There's a little bit more to it, and I go deep into it in um, a book that I wrote last last year. But um, afterwards, I get up and I oh, he had said, um, ask, uh, say your prayers at the altar, and um, ask for guidance. Okay, so I get up, and I remember walking down towards the altar to say my Hail Mary and Our Father. And I guess having, being the creative child I was, it was as if I could hear the drums playing mm. as if there was a death about ready to happen. Mm. And I get up to the altar and was just pushing my forehead into my um, knuckles and wanting to just say, Lord, just put me up on that altar. Put me up on that cross because I can't do this anymore. Mm. So that was grade seven. Wow. And unfortunately, um, a child doesn't realize that uh, we can internalize our feelings and thoughts and how we process what's happening to us can cause certain things. Mm-hmm. So um, looking back, you know, there can be mental disorders. Um, there could be different kinds of addictions um, that lead to obesity, whatever that may be. Um, For me, I got sick. And Mm -hmm. so after that incident, I had, um, uh, what is it called? Um, Spinal meningitis. 
Hmm. And um, was in the hospital. I had to have two spinal taps because the first needle broke. And I just remember, this is God punishing me for telling Mm. on my father. This is a child in grade seven internalizing all of this and making sense of what happened. Right. Right. Because everything that you have been told up to this point is pain and suffering is a way of being taught by... Closer to God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that just... There's so many pieces about this that blow my mind and infuriate me on your behalf and for so many others. And just, it's a sickening process. And I think system, you know, we're, we're seeing enough abuse, especially mm-hmm. sexually within the church and the cover-ups that go along with it and all the rest of it. How can you not say this is systemic now at this point? How well, much exactly. be to say the church is broken? Oh, so let's fast forward. <laughs> yeah, a whole other rabbit trail. So um, I continue on to a Catholic high school in grade nine, and the abuse that had been happening um, continued on. On the last day of school, I get off the bus, and instead of going to first period, I go to see my school counselor. And I'll never forget, I knock on the door. She said, Oh, Delane, what are you doing here? I said, I'd like to share something with you. She said, sure. So she's sitting at her desk. The chair is right next to her desk and facing her. So I sit and I tell her, my dad's been abusing me sexually since grade four and I need help. Hmm. She looks at me and says this. I am so sorry to hear that, Delane. Well, let's see how the summer goes and we'll deal with it when you come back in September. Hmm. So you were abandoned and betrayed by multiple adults in your life that should have been able to intercede in some way, shape, or form, not to mention from the very beginning of your father. And here we are looking at all the patriarchal models of religion that God, our father, you're saying all the prayers our father, you're going to the priest, our father, and your issue is your birth father. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's, you know, just a little bit to have to work through. Oh, definitely. Wow. Fortunately, in grade 10, um, there was my debate slash, uh, I think he was more my debate teacher. (laughs) Anyway, um, there was, for some reason, I felt comfortable with him. And um, I was a teacher's aide. And so I would go in and I brought him a coffee early in the morning. And um, this is before class was or school was to start. And I just looked up at him and I said, I need to say something to you. And he said, shoot, kid. So I told him that my dad had been doing this to me. And he said, he, he used to wear sunglasses and he took the sunglasses off and looked at me and said, let me get this straight. Hmm. Repeated back what I had said to him. And I said, yes, will you help me? Hmm. And he said, I need to make sure that this is, you know, correct because as a teacher, I am bound to report this to the police. And that's when I broke down and cried and said, thank you. Hmm. He was 
another man that I just, for whatever reason, there was a comfortable feeling and he watched over me the rest of high school. And um, fortunately, during that time, I was able to be placed uh, with a foster family that are actually still um, my family to this day. Mm -hmm. So my foster mother back at, when I was 15 is now my mom. So it's a beautiful story, actually. I love that there was space in your heart to allow for other people to be able to come in because I think that that in of itself, there's such a, a, an overwhelming desire when you're at that level of trauma to just shut down and just assume that anyone that would try to fill that role is going to be in the same character as what you've already experienced. So I'm so grateful for you that you had the capacity to be able to let other people in and to let them love you. That's amazing. Yeah. I, you know, I don't understand or know where that resilience and constant openness to being vulnerable came from. Because when I try to reflect, I don't know if it was the idea of people pleasing. Maybe that's where it was rooted from. Uh, and if I was to people please, then maybe I could belong and fit in here. Mm -hmm. Because for sure, I did not fit in in my family. Right. And for obvious reasons, there was shame, there was pain. And um, not being able to, uh, being threatened that if I had said something to my biological mother, you know, the repercussions of all of that. And I would, when I reflect back, I wonder if, I mean, my biological mother said she didn't know, but I wonder how could you not know? Because when I disclosed to my biological mother, and with my biological father present, mm -hmm. she looked at me and said, what are you talking about? Mm. And I just said to her, how could you not know? Did you not know or question where your husband was at night? Wow. And this is at 15. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have kids. <laughs> and I wonder for any other parent in, that's listening, you know, look at your child. What happened when they were nine? Right. What happened when they were 12 and 15 years old? Mm -hmm. and, and it took me how many times to say something for someone to actually believe me and help? Right. You know, I tried to run away in grade eight, and unfortunately, that got foiled. My uh, biological father found out and basically locked me in the house. So I wasn't able to do that. And that, that incident is still traumatic when I oh, reflect sure. on it. You know, I'm sure. I would imagine, you know, again, so many different layers and just that idea of feeling hopeless and trapped. And it's not just the, the physical feeling of that, but again, going back to this foundation of shame and guilt and secrecy and a disassociation this time not in the idea of being mentally or emotionally saved in the experience, but a disassociation from your body and from the emotions that 
you know, would have come along with this isn't right. I need out. And yet no one is listening to me. Exactly. And you actually bring up a good point because I was um, talking to someone of experience the other day and just in conversation, what came up was as an adult, how did this one individual, because she blames herself for have potentially putting herself in a situation of rape and um, she should have known better. And so she lives with that guilt. And I said to her, you know, I don't, I'm going to offer this, but because of our experience and it was so, it happened when we were so young, maybe our, that part of our gut instinct, it just became so normalized that it no longer became danger to us. Mm. And that's when, um, feelings, especially negative ones, when we're, we're told we're supposed to listen to our gut instinct, you know, trust your gut, what's your stomach say? You know, there's a reason. But if, if some of the, the, the fight or flight has been numbed mm -hmm. and normalized, then I think some of us who, who have been of experience, especially as young children, um, probably do endanger ourselves in some way um, as an adult because that fight or flight or what our gut instinct has been um, dampened or numbed, if you will. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes complete sense. I would completely agree with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I actually just said in therapy, probably within the past month, uh, because once I, basically once I started the podcast, I immediately went back into therapy because <laughs> I knew that it wasn't just me bringing up my own traumas, but also I was becoming a container to hold other people's. And I knew that I was going to need to really pay attention to what I was holding space for versus what I was internalizing. And then what does that bring up for me? And, you know, again, all the layers, but I right. really just said, uh, you know, this idea of I'm learning to trust myself again. And, you know, she kind of cocked her head to the side and said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, it's pretty simple. Um, this whole idea of, you know, lean into your own intuition and that you always have the answer and all of these things that we love to see in memes. Uh, I don't have that as an immediate go-to anymore because that was so disconnected. That was so separated from me for the last 30 years that I need to rebuild those connections and I need to learn how to trust my intuition. And it's not something... I think that many of us uh, were ever taught or encouraged, or I would go so far as to say, again, there is a systemic design in place to separate us from ourselves. Because when we are completely scattered from each different piece of us, we're more likely to comply. We're more likely to people please. We're more likely to work for approval. And everything we're doing is externally focused instead of internally because our compass is broken. And in order oh. to get that fixed, that's a process. Completely. I mean, how many times, well, for me, I, it was, don't feel that, oh, that pain and suffering, just put it up to God and God will take care of it. Right. Or it's even being applauded because look at you, 
Isn't that wonderful that you're in so much pain? Because again, that means you're closer to God. It's like, wait, what? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, and then and that actually dovetails us right back to this idea of God and the neighbors and then ourselves. Again, this idea of there's a value system of being a martyr, whether mm-hmm. that is literally giving your life on the mission field in order to tell everyone about what, what your faith is or how you believe, or if it's something as simple as putting the rest of your family ahead of yourself, putting your children's needs, putting your clients' needs, like all of the different things that we tend to take on as women, especially, it's so easy to fall into the idea that martyrdom is of high value. Oh, yes. And I think what's interesting as I'm hearing you say all that is when I reflect at my, in particular, my biological mom and the other relatives that I was exposed to, how much they believed that, and because that was what was modeled for me. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm, as you and I are unpacking this actually, that it was modeled that the more suffering that you endured, that you probably will be entered, you will most likely be entering the gates of heaven mm. and just give it up to God. Right. And, and I think we forget that sometimes is um, because a lot of today, you know, in today's world of entrepreneurship and what we're, you know, be the best you and, mm. you know, the things that you, we see on social media. Uh, we forget that some of the habits that we have been practicing for years or decades have been habits that were learned and modeled by other people. And whether that be parents, the church, uh, older siblings, other people we looked up to, even maybe people that are famous, whether they be professional, financial banker, president of a country or uh, someone in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. but who was that model for you growing up? And in today's world, I, I really question, uh, especially for parents, because parents have such responsibility of trying to raise the best child possible, but the one thing they can't control is the media. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of modeling going on out there that I think I, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I know that being an aunt to two nieces that I love and adore, trying to make sure that they have a healthy perspective of who they are and where they're going in life. Um, but circling back to what we're talking about, models are really important. And we don't, I think we tend to forget that. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we, we just accept them without taking the time to really step out of the scenario and observe and evaluate of saying, does this actually line up with who I am in my bones? Does this line up with the values that I believe because I believe them, not because I was told to believe them? Oh, and you are so right. Process. It's hard, I think, sometimes. It's, it's so much easier just to 
exist and to not try to better yourself. That is easier <laughs> to not have to try to understand all the different layers and, and the responsibility that we each have in our individual choices that we make and how that then shapes who we are and who we become. Well, that's what I'll go back to her again, but my interpretation <laughs> of Brene Brown saying that's us wanting to fit in. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then that brings us right back to the idea of the conformity and, and all of the, the other pieces at play. Um, oh my goodness. I, this, the time has flown. This has been such an amazing conversation. I knew it would be. Thank you so much for your time and, and your vulnerability and your willingness to, to go to places that are hard to go to. Thank you for that. I want to thank you and acknowledge you for some really wonderful questions. Good questions. <laughs> they're the, they're the hard ones to answer, right? Yes. <laughs> makes, makes it uh, interesting to, to be sure. I used to always joke when I was uh, you know, a teenager, I would go on short-term missions trips and interesting became my favorite word because you could use it without being offensive to anyone. You know, it's this food that you've been given to eat that is absolutely terrible, but you can't say that to your host. So you can say it's interesting. Like it could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing you never know so I find I still say interesting probably far more often than most people <laughs> so good or bad who knows but it's interesting well I, I find that uh, fascinating because that is the word I tend to use oh I so love it that is fascinating as I sometimes roll my eyes <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, whether or not people can see that part right exactly <laughs> I love this. Well, if you guys have enjoyed this conversation, which I'm sure that you have, um, be sure to check out our bonus segment because I teased out this idea that Delane's in part or involved with and actually leading the charge of this amazing art project. Um, however, we're going to talk about that in our bonus segment. So if you want to hear what that's all about, which trust me, you want to hear, um, be sure to join us on our email list. That'll get you into our private Facebook group because of course, Talking about the stuff that we're talking about, this is not just open to the public kind of a thing. Um, you know, I, I do take a responsibility in being able to screen the people that want to be a part of this conversation to make sure that we're coming from a place of openness and vulnerability and togetherness and healing. So um, again, that's why it's a private group and it's on lockdown. Uh, it's to keep us safe and to be able to have these conversations in a safe place. So um, join us over there. And then you'll get to hear all about this. And I can't wait for you to tell us, Delaine. It's going to be fantastic. And again, thank you so much for being a part of this. Oh, thank you so much, Tanya. I really appreciate it. All right. We will see you guys soon. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.